Grace mentioned earlier that we're in the final night when Jesus was spending time with his disciples before his death on the cross. Last week we were reminded that he told them he was the Passover lamb. He fulfilled the Passover. Then he shares the news one of them is going to betray him. They're a bit shocked. They're a bit confused. So we're going to see where the conversation goes now. So it's Luke chapter 22, reading from verse 24 to verse 38. Luke 22, verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father confirmed, conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse and bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. If you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfilment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. Uh, good evening, folks. It's, um, it's nice to be uh, preaching here at 6pm again. Uh, I've had a few weeks away from preaching. Uh, it's been running the onboard course, and so uh, it's a pleasure to get back into Luke's gospel. Uh, I've really enjoyed studying this passage this week uh, in preparation, so I hope it's going to be beneficial for you guys as it has been for me. Uh, let's pray and ask for God to ready our hearts, and, uh, and then let's see what he's got to say to us. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, for the opportunity to I sit around your word today. We thank you for the technology that makes it available for people to join us on the live stream. We do pray for 
anyone in our church family sick or isolating and can't be with us here tonight, please uh, heal them, bless them, uh, and make this time fruitful for them. Pray too for us here in the building, uh, Lord, that we would have ears to hear you speaking through your word tonight. Uh, Lord, we are so thankful that the Lord Jesus uh, had these words written down for us. And so, uh, Lord, help us to cherish them and to treat them as the precious instructions that they are for what life will be like when he departs. And so we ask in his name. Amen. Uh, I wonder if you've ever had the experience where you've put all your eggs in one basket. Uh, I don't know, maybe literally, but probably more metaphorically. You ever had that kind of experience? You've just pinned all of your hopes all of your dreams on one thing or perhaps on one person. Have you ever done that? Just you are banking on this person being the one. It's make or break. Uh, Well, earlier this week, um, we had the shock retirement of Ash Barty, as uh, I'm sure you would have heard. Shock because it was at the age of 25 uh, and Ash had amassed already in her short career a very impressive resume. She already won five Grand Slams. She was the current Wimbledon and Australian Open champion. She has spent 114 consecutive weeks as world number one. And so it's this huge shock when she announced her uh, departure from the sport right literally at the pinnacle of the sport. Now, Ash had uh, flirted with retirement a few times in the past. She'd made rumblings about it, but nobody really believed that that's what was going to happen. She was just too good. She was too successful. There was too much still ahead of her. No one thought it was going to happen, but it did, and it happened this week. She walked away. And uh, suddenly, Australian tennis fans have uh, all realized that we've had all of our eggs in that basket uh, for the last few years. Because let's be honest, there's not much of a plan B in Australian tennis beyond Ash Barty, is there? Uh, All of our hopes and dreams for future glory, for more Grand Slams, for more victories, they disappear as Ash walks away from the sport. I'm sorry to tell you that. It doesn't seem all that likely that there's much good in store for us now that she's going away. And so I think there's going to be this kind of vacuum that's left once Ash departs. uh, And no one really knows what's going to come next for Australian tennis. What is it going to be like living in a post-Ash Barty landscape? We'll find out, I guess. Now, I, I reckon that some of that kind of ambiguity, uh, some of that uncertainty about the future would be exactly what Jesus' disciples would be feeling at this moment in Luke's gospel, because Jesus has just announced his departure at the Last Supper, that he is going to suffer and die. And just like Ash, he'd said that before, but nobody was really listening to him. Nobody believed that this guy wasn't going to be the king. He's going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. Surely we all know that. No one took it seriously when Jesus said he was going to die. But now it's really happening. And all of the hopes and the dreams that the disciples had pinned on Jesus, they are quickly evaporating because it doesn't seem like Jesus is going to be that king that they were hoping for. They had put all their eggs in his basket and now he's leaving. What is that even going to mean for them as his followers once he leaves? What will life be like, life be like in a post-Jesus world for his disciples? What comes next? Are they ready? I think they would be feeling pretty unprepared at that point. So what Jesus does, like the good teacher that he, he is, is that he helps his disciples prepare for his departure. He uses these final few words here, this final opportunity to teach them what the world will be like once he goes. 
And so in today's passage, what we're going to see are three things that we need to be ready for as Jesus' disciples, because make no mistake, we today are in the exact same boat that Jesus' disciples in this passage are in. They are about to be living in a post-Jesus world, in a world after his death and resurrection and ascension and before his return. That's the time we're living in. And so the lessons that Jesus wants them to be ready for, they're lessons for us too. So let's have a look. What is it that Jesus wants his disciples to be ready for? Three things. Firstly, he wants them to be ready for service. Ready for service. The uh, the scene starts there in verse 24, and uh, Jesus just announced his death. He is going to be this new Passover lamb who's going to provide salvation for his people, and immediately his disciples start squabbling. It's a pretty ugly scene. Look at verse 24. A dispute also arose among them, the disciples, as to which of them was considered the greatest. Ugly stuff from these disciples, isn't it? But you can understand how they got there. They've just been told that the hand of the person who's going to betray Jesus is at the table. And so they would be asking, well, who's it going to be? Who's the one who's going to bail on Jesus? Who's the weakest link in this script? It's not me. No, I'm, I'm the strongest one amongst us. Jesus is actually, I think I'm his favorite disciple, don't you know? I'm going to be the greatest disciple. Probably went something like that. But it's no less shameful, even if it is justified, right? And I, th- I think it's worth pausing as we sort of arrive at this scene and see these proud, squabbling disciples just pausing and recognizing actually how deeply embedded in every single human being is this sense of pride, this desire for honor. You see it here in the apostles, and I'm telling you it's in every one of us as well. Now, if you're sitting there tonight and you think, well, pride's not really my issue, you know, I don't struggle with pride, I'm sorry to tell you, that's your pride talking. You do. I think that there is a selfish pride that is like a sediment that sits on the bottom of every human heart. Even if you think of yourself as a humble person by default, well, just wait. You just wait until somebody around you receives the praise or the recognition that you deserved. Just just wait till that happens and you will see the pride in your heart get shaken up like a snow globe. Jesus interrupts this ugly debate, pride fueling these accusations. And Jesus insists here that true greatness in his kingdom is marked by sacrificial service because Jesus himself is one who sacrificially served. Now, this is one of the the main things that Jesus wants his disciples to grapple with before he leaves, what life is going to be like in a post-Jesus world. It must be marked by sacrificial service. And Jesus is not just talking about the occasional act of you know putting somebody else's needs before your own, a little bit of self-denial. Jesus is saying that if you are his disciple, then your whole life is going to be marked by an outlook where you see yourself as a servant of other people all the time. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Have a look from verse 25. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Now, a benefactor, if you don't know what that is, it's basically a rich person who is trying to receive lots of public recognition and acclaim. And they do that by donating lots of money and paying for public works in the city so that their reputation gets built up. They're doing good for others, but only 
for their own self-interest. And it's pretty obvious to see how that kind of a picture of a leader who lords it over, a leader who's a leader who's only in it for themselves, how that is alive and well in our world today. I mean, we can picture very easily all sorts of leaders, political, religious, business leaders who are just in it for their personal acclaim and glory, people who are hungry for the spotlight and the headline. That's the world that we're living in. But Jesus says, verse 26, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. Jesus' followers, well, they should be like the children in the society, the children who were the least important people on the social ladder, the ones who had no rights, no privileges, the ones who were there to serve others. That's what Jesus' followers are supposed to be like. True greatness, according to Jesus, comes from serving others. Real leadership will be that kind of leadership in God's kingdom where you put yourself in the position of greatest vulnerability for the good of other people. And that idea is, is radically countercultural. It's countercultural today. It was countercultural 2,000 years ago. Verse 27. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. We all know that, don't we? It's obvious. Take a look at this picture. And uh, ignore the fact that it's a screenshot from Downton Abbey. This is the clearest example I could find. I'm sorry if that bothers you. It's obvious in this picture who the great ones are, right? Who's higher on the pecking order? It's the ones seated, the ones being served. And yet if Jesus were in this picture, he'd be the butler standing there serving us. Jesus comes into our world and he radically upturns the social order. Jesus was the King of kings and the Lord of lords who, though he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant to serve us by laying down his life for us. And so the kingdom of Jesus will be marked by that same sacrificial service, not self-interest. I want to say that this is quite easy, I think, to understand in theory. But the test of whether you've really grasped this will be when you're serving Jesus and your service goes unnoticed. That'll test whether you've really grasped this. Or when responsibility gets taken away from you and handed over to somebody else. Or when somebody else is thanked publicly and you are not. That is when you will start to find out whether that sediment of pride is going to get kicked up in your heart. Uh, in the, this past week in the news, if you've noticed, there has been yet another uh, scandal of a well-known Australian church leader who has used their authority of their leadership for their own personal gratification instead of for the welfare of the people that they lead. It's disgraceful, isn't it? People who claim the name of Jesus, they shouldn't be like that. We serve the servant king. We follow in his footsteps. Uh, I have a friend who planted a church uh, up on the central coast a few years ago. And in the early days of, of the church plant, he would get lots of really keen Christians coming along and asking to be involved and saying, oh, look, I'm, I'm, I'm available. What do you need me to do? Is there anything I can help out with? I've got lots of time, lots of energy. You tell me what you want me to do and I'll get involved. It was a very kind offer from people. 
But my friend would say to every person who offered help, every single one of them, he would say, because they were meeting in a school hall at the time, this church plant, he would say, yeah, that's great. You know, there is one way that you could help. Could you show up next week an hour before the service and scrub the toilets? That would be the most helpful thing that you could do. That was his stock answer to anybody who asked for help. And did you see what he's doing there is he is sifting out very quickly the people who are only interested in serving for their own glory and those who are interested in serving like their Lord. It will make it very obvious whether they're in it for themselves or whether they're in it for Jesus. Now, let me say, I am really deeply thankful to be a part of a church like WBC where there are so many Christ-like servants amongst us. Genuinely, I really am. And one of the things that I do give thanks for quite regularly in our church, uh, you may not know this, and it's a good thing if you don't, but uh, there are some very influential, powerful, successful, notable people in our church, people who in the eyes of the world would be lifted up, respected as, as great, powerful leaders. But you wouldn't know it in our church because when they come to our church, they're the ones sweeping the floors and cleaning the toilets and teaching the children and cooking meals for people who are sick. These are people who are unashamed to call themselves servants for our sake. People like that are great in the kingdom of God. In fact, anyone who serves like that, regardless of what your status is in the world, Jesus says you are great in his kingdom if you serve like him. So let me take the opportunity tonight to encourage you, if you're a follower of Jesus and if WBC is your church, Get involved in serving. You hear me say that pretty regularly. You may be sick of me saying that. There are so many opportunities to get involved in ministry teams here at church, to serve the mission that we are on. And I can't promise you that every single one of those jobs is glamorous, but they are all vital. And I, I, I want to say, as you consider that and as you think about perhaps I should get involved and, and serve like my Saviour Jesus, please don't hear this call to service as if I'm asking you to do me a favor, do the church a favor. That's not what's going on here at all. Anytime we ask people to serve and volunteer, it's not for our benefit. No, actually, uh, it's your privilege to do this, to follow in the footsteps of your Savior, to be like him, the Savior who served you. And Jesus, in fact, makes an incredible promise in this passage. He says that for anyone who serves him, there is going to be a great reward coming your way. Did you notice that in verse 28 to 30? Have a look there, this great reward. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, there's a lot going on in those verses. If you studied this passage in home group this past week, you've probably got lots of questions. I'm not going to answer them for you. But I do want to I'll deal with them on the podcast this week. I do just want to point out at least one key implication here. There is a promise here that if we align ourselves with Jesus and with his apostles, then we will have our place in his kingdom. We will eat and drink and sit at Christ's table, being part of his community. That is a great reward for us, isn't it, if we serve like Jesus? Uh, pride is an ever-present danger for the followers of Jesus, but we mustn't compare ourselves to other people. We mustn't scramble for the spotlight. Instead, we are to pour ourselves out in service of others, knowing that God will honour us in the age to come, and that is more than enough for us. So be ready for service. That's the first thing Jesus wants to teach us. 
Second thing Jesus wants to be ready for, he wants us to be ready for sifting. Be ready for sifting. Now, uh, the shadow of Satan has been kind of hovering over this whole meal. You might remember um, that at the start of this chapter, we read that Satan entered Judas, right, as he is going off to betray Jesus. And now Satan is here again, and he's pressing further, trying again to derail the mission of God. And this time he's taking aim at the disciples as a whole. Have a look at verse 31. Jesus speaks to Simon. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. Notice it's not just Simon who is in the crosshairs here. It's all of Jesus' disciples that Satan wants to sift. And that language of sifting as wheat, it's this kind of uh, imagery of throwing wheat into the air and letting the wind blow away the chaff so that only the valuable wheat remains. When you sift the wheat like this, it will sort out what is real, valuable, true blue wheat and what is worthless. It will get blown away. And this is what is going to happen to Jesus' disciples. They are going to be sifted. I think it's talking about trials and temptations and suffering to find out whether Jesus' disciples are the real deal or whether they are going to be blown away. Satan is going to do this to Jesus' followers. It's the same kind of thing that you might remember in the Old Testament, in the book of Job. You read about Satan wanting to put Job under immense pressure to find out whether he will curse God and give up on him. That's the devil's intention with us every single day for those of us who follow Jesus. And I don't think that we think about that enough. The topic of the devil is something that we, we just don't talk about in churches like ours very regularly, but Jesus is quite unashamed to talk about the activity of Satan. And so I think we need to follow his lead here and understand what he's trying to tell us. Because the Bible actually does tell us quite a lot about what Satan is doing in the world. The Bible says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for people to devour. Uh, that he seeks to snatch the seed, that is the word of God, away when it is spoken. That he is the great deceiver. He is given the name murderer, prince of this world, liar in the Bible. The devil is the one who accuses Christians. He's the one who sows weeds amongst the wheat. That's us. The devil is restless in the Bible, invisible and experienced. Now, I'm not talking, I don't want you to have the picture here of some cartoonish, horned, red devil kind of thing. That's not the Bible's picture of the devil, and nor is it the, the kind of horror movie picture of Satan either. Satan in the Bible is a sinister power of personal evil that lies behind all evil and temptation and wickedness in our world. And so as, as we side ourselves with Jesus... We come into contact with the greatest ally that we could ever have in the universe, but we also put ourselves in the crosshairs of the greatest enemy in the universe too. And if we are going to take the Bible seriously and we're going to take Jesus seriously, then we ought to expect this. Trial, temptation, sifting at the hands of the devil. That's why the Apostle Paul tells us to arm ourselves against the devil. Peter says to be sober-minded and alert. James says, resist the devil. Jesus himself says, watch and pray against the devil. This is a reality that as a follower of Jesus, you will encounter, whether you're aware of it or not. And Jesus wants us here to be ready for that. Speaking personally, as I've been reflecting on the ways that the devil might be seeking to sift me, I've spent some time thinking and praying about that this week. 
And it's become obvious to me, I think, that the devil wants me to doubt God's committed love for me. It's something that I wrestle with. I've noticed that I think the devil wants me to slip into a lukewarm kind of faith, happy to give just enough of my life to God and no more. That the devil wants me to think that my sin is just a small sin, no one's watching, it's not going to be that big of a deal. Those are the kinds of temptations that I wrestle with. They may not be the same temptations that you wrestle with. But I want to say that at every point, the devil will be seeking to do this to you. He will sift you at a weak point in your life when you are at your most vulnerable. He doesn't lay off you just because you're busy at work. He doesn't go easy because you're sleep-deprived or sick. He is no respecter of the bereaved or the depressed or the lonely. The devil loves it, in fact, when we've had some great success in our life and our guard is down. He especially loves it when we think we are being spiritually strong. That's exactly what happened to Peter here in this passage. You notice that in verse 33? Jesus tells Peter that he's going to be sifted. Peter replies, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. I'm going to stand strong, Jesus, not me, Jesus. Well, Peter will stumble, actually. Verse 34, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. That's exactly what happens. Before the end of the night, Peter is in tears in his own weakness and failure for denying Jesus. And I want to tell you, if you follow Jesus for long enough, you will know that you will have moments of gut-wrenching failure in your life as a follower of Jesus. It's an inevitability, I think. You will find yourself in puddles of shame and regret as a Christian, ashamed of stumbling. And so be ready, says Jesus. But did you notice in this section as well, that Jesus actually anticipates Peter's failure. Did you get that? Verse 32, he reminds Peter that when he turns back, and he will after stumbling, that there's still going to be a place for him in Jesus' kingdom. Jesus knows that Peter will not fail in the ultimate sense, even though he is going to stumble. He knows that he will not fail ultimately because Jesus has prayed for him. Isn't that a remarkable thing to read in the Bible? If Jesus praying for his followers. Isn't it supposed to be kind of the other way around? Well, there is a consistent teaching in the Bible that that is something that Jesus does. Biblical language is that Jesus intercedes for us. He goes between the Father and us and speaks to the Father on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, the famous verse on this, says, Therefore, Jesus, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. That is an amazing thought, isn't it? What comfort that is. That the risen, resurrected Jesus is praying for you right now. That he is more committed to his sheep than his sheep are to him. And you see what it says there? It says, because he always lives to intercede, therefore he is able to save you completely. Completely. If you come to God through him. Not just save you a little bit, save part of you, save you to an extent. No, to save you completely if you come to God through him, no matter in what ways you stumble. That's what our Lord Jesus will do. Doesn't that give you confidence? Uh, Staring down the barrel of satanic sifting. Jesus is praying for you. He is able to save you completely, no matter what. The uh, Scottish 
uh, pastor and author from a couple of hundred years ago, Robert Murray McShane, once wrote this, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Friends, be ready for sifting, but don't fear the enemy. Your great high priest Jesus is in your corner, and when you fail and turn back, Jesus will receive you with open arms. It's the second thing Jesus wants us to know. Third way that he wants us to be ready for his departure is that he wants us to be ready for opposition. Ready for opposition. So let's read from verse 35. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag, and if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak, and take one. These are verses that are talking about the missionary advance of the gospel. And Jesus is referring here back earlier to Luke chapter 9 and 10, where he sent out his disciples to herald his arrival as king. And back then, chapters 9 and 10, he told his disciples, you don't need to take anything. Just leave your bag, leave your cloak, and head on out, and you will find a hospitable welcome from the nation of Israel. But now, he says, verse 36, but now, bring your purse, bring your cloak, Bring your sword, bring your bag. You cannot go empty-handed anymore because something has changed. Uh, You've got to have different expectations now when you take this gospel out into the world when I'm not here anymore. Don't expect hospitality. Expect hostility. That's Jesus' point. Now, I do want to make just a quick comment here about something that does seem very strange in these verses, that instruction to take a sword. Is this Jesus telling us to go and advance the kingdom of God by threat of violence? Is that what's going on? I don't think so. I think by the end of this passage, Jesus has rebuked his followers when they've picked up the swords and taken him literally. He says, no, that's enough. Shut it down. But also later in the chapter, verse 50, when his disciples are still so dense and they do raise the sword and cut off the ear of the guard who's arresting Jesus, Jesus tells them to stop, not to keep going, but that they've done something wrong and he heals the man who they had cut. I think the point here is that Jesus is just trying to communicate to his disciples that they ought to expect opposition in their mission. Uh, People are not going to be as receptive to the message about the king as they perhaps were earlier in Jesus' ministry. So as Jesus' disciples go out to the ends of the earth with this message, they are going to have doors slammed in their faces. Uh, They are going to be run out of towns. They are going to be beaten and mocked and abused and martyred. And you can actually read Luke, who wrote this gospel, write the second volume, the book of Acts, where he describes exactly that happen, happening, the, the opposition that was coming their way. It used to be simpler, but now, says Jesus, expect opposition. And it's the same for us, friends. We ought to expect opposition as we make efforts to share the good news of the gospel with the people of this world. We ought to expect that it will not go well. And I want to tell you that I'm really glad Jesus said this. I genuinely am, (laughs) which might sound strange. Why would I be glad that Jesus tells me it's going to go badly? Well, if Jesus had said here that the normal experience for a disciple as they take the good news of the gospel out into the world is that everybody's going to be clapping you down the street as you come, proclaiming Jesus, patting you on the back, feeding you, supporting you, so glad that you've come and told them to repent and believe in Jesus. If Jesus said that was the normal experience, just endless victory everywhere you go, then I would be depressed because that's not my experience. And I suspect it's probably not yours as well. 
my experience involves a lot more failure than that. It involves lots of dead-end conversations, limited progress, and people viewing me as a little bit strange for the things that I believe. And if that's your experience too, if your efforts to make Jesus known in this world do not always meet with success, then I think that's okay. Jesus says that's normal. Expect it and be ready for it. Now, I want to be clear as well as I say this, I don't want to come across too depressing because we do know the rest of the Bible makes very clear that the ultimate victory of God is inevitable. Uh, the war has already be, been won. The knowledge of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. We know that that day is going to come. But here's the point. Just because the war has been won, it doesn't guarantee victory in any particular battle for any one of us. That's the point Jesus is making. So take heart. If you run into opposition when sharing the gospel, take heart because Jesus told you that would happen. And in fact, in verse 37, Jesus explains why that's going to happen, uh, why the times are changing, and why there's going to be opposition to the gospel from here on out. And in verse 37, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 53, that famous prophecy of the suffering servant uh, back in the Old Testament. And Jesus says that that prophecy is being fulfilled in him now. So let's turn back to Isaiah 53 and read this, this quote from Jesus. Isaiah 53, 12. This is the passage. Therefore, I will give him, that is the, the, the suffering servant, God's promised king, the Messiah, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You see, there in Isaiah, we are told that God's king has come with a mission, the mission to carry God's judgment at sin away. And he's going to do that by pouring out his life unto death. It's the very thing Jesus has just explained that he's doing in the Passover. He's the new sacrificial, the sacrificial Passover lamb. He will take away the sins of the world. And Isaiah tells us further that as the king achieves his mission, he is going to be rejected. He's going to be numbered with the transgressors. People are going to look at him as a criminal and want to get rid of him. He will be despised, but God will vindicate this one. He will raise him up and give him a portion among the great. That's God's plan for his king, the rejected rescuer. And so it's no surprise, is it, that we as Jesus' disciples, as we head out into the world with the message of this rejected king, that we would be rejected too. That shouldn't surprise us. In fact, as we are rejected in the proclamation of the gospel, it ought to be a reminder to us that God's mission has gone exactly to plan, exactly as he said it would. He was numbered with the transgressors, and so will we be. As our efforts to share the gospel are stymied, we ought to remember that our sins have been paid for by this one who was rejected. Jesus' departure and death does not spell an end to our hopes for victory. It is our hope for victory. Jesus has not left us in the lurch. He has not left us to guess what life will be like once he leaves. We are not fools for putting all of our eggs in Jesus' basket. Jesus has prepared and equipped us for life after he leaves, 
no matter what difficulties we may face from the world, the flesh, or the devil, we are ready. If it's opposition from the world, well, look, we can take that in our stride because we've been accepted by God. If it's sifting from the enemy, we've got nothing to fear because Jesus, our great high priest, is praying for us. If it's the the pull of our sinful flesh, well, we can choose to serve instead, following the footsteps of the one who laid down his life for us. Jesus wants us to be ready, ready to serve, ready to be sifted, and ready to suffer for the gospel. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that your mission took you to the cross and to the grave and to the sky. Thank you that you have gone away, Jesus. Thank you that you have not left us, though, as orphans. Thank you that you have sent us your spirit who is with us, helping us, encouraging us, guiding us. And thank you that you have told us to be ready to expect things in this life as we follow you in your absence. We pray that you would help us to remember the great victory you've won for us. Help us to remember the great example you have set by laying down your life. And help us to remember what you are doing right now, supporting and praying for us from heaven. And so give us confidence to face these challenges, knowing that one day we will eat and drink and sit with you at your table in the kingdom of God. Amen.